Turning your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to continue our series on Jesus as King when he was born in a stable. What an amazing, humble birth that was. Tradition actually says that he was born in a cave. We don't know if that's for certain or not. But he was certainly born in humble settings. He, he, he did not have kings come to him despite what people make of the magi. They were not kings. Um, and they came bearing gifts. They brought three gifts. So people suppose that there were three of them. There could have been 20. We don't know. Um, the, the truth is that Jesus was born in humble beginnings. Tragedy, uh, hardship all around him. His mother having to wear that tag of, you know, giving birth out of wedlock. And that was difficult. Each of, each of us wrestle with certain things that we, we would call enemies. And our point has been last week, the week before, this week as well, that Jesus as king came to conquer our enemies. And then the first week we noticed that we saw Jesus came to conquer Satan. We're going to see that just a little bit today. Uh, and then last week we talked about Jesus came to conquer sin. But he came as a babe born as king in our midst 2,000 years ago. When he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He rules on David's throne, it says, and extends his kingdom to Jews and Gentiles, ruling over them, seeking to, to seek and save the lost. And I truly believe that in the end of the age, a magnificent global revival will be sweeping the land. We are certainly praying that that will happen in our day, this generation. But in this process, here's something that you may observe. People are very fascinated with this concept of death. The Bible says that death is the last enemy to be overcome. Were you aware that Ponce de Leon came to Florida, and the rumor was that he came to Florida specifically to find what? Fountain of Youth. So he landed in, in St. Augustine, and if you go there, and we've been there a couple of times, first uh, uh, settlement in Florida and he came, and I believe it was 1514. But the rumor was he came here only to find the Fountain of Youth. And some people seriously dispute that. It was to discredit his character. But people were saying, no, 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 the Fountain of Youth is in a place called Bimini. And so some people have believed Bimini was in the Bahamas, some people in the Gulf of Honduras, et cetera, et cetera. But people have been kind of caught up in this concept of the fountain of youth, right? Uh, Herodotus was a Greek historian who wrote in the 400s BC, BC, and he came across a settlement in the Mediterranean in which people were living on average 120 years. They claimed that it was because a pool that when they went in and came out, it coated them so that their skin was nice and shiny, uh, apparently a lot of minerals in the water, uh, but what Herodotus also says is the type of lifestyle that they had. And it was rich, their diet was rich in fish, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm not encouraging you to change your diet now to fish, but hey, you know, maybe. The truth, though, is that they were caught up even back then in this concept of how can I prolong life? How can I cheat death? How many of you have ever seen uh, Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? Okay, and you remember that last, it's not the last scene, but the, it's the last, it's like a culmination of the movie, the climax, and Indiana Jones, uh, Donovan is the bad guy, he's like a rogue 
archaeologist, and he cheats and steals and even murders just so that he can cheat death itself because he is in search of, right, the Holy Grail. And apparently these three uh, crusaders came back, but they found the Holy Grail, and they're stashed away somewhere, and they're finding all of these clues. Now, I love, you know, this concept of searching and finding clues to lead to the next clue, so I'm, like, totally into this movie. And Donovan, spoiler alert, by the way, if you've not seen the movie, uh, it's so old you should have seen it by now anyway if you haven't, but he comes to where they're hidden, he's following all the clues, and he's got an array of of uh I'll just, for the lack of a better term, holy grails, if you will, to choose from. And he chooses one chalice, dips it in the water, and does he end up living forever? No, because he chose, he did not choose wisely, right? And of course, Indiana Jones does. He grabs the water, and uh, then, of course, he crosses the line, and suddenly the blessing of eternal life evades him, and he has to live as a normal human being. Oh, well. And I bring this up because it's a movie that draws us in because we in our culture are so desiring to overcome this thought and, and this reality of death. It is a tragedy that we all must embrace one day. I don't care how hard you try to cheat death. Even within science, they're trying to make discoveries about how to prolong life. So what they have done, among other things, is they focused on this the, the aging disease. Some teens, when they by the time they reach teenage 14, 15, 16, they die because they look as if they're 65. Not that you're going to die at 65, but they, they, they look very old, and what they have discovered is their telomeres are really short. You know what a telomere is? Telomeres are like the end caps on your chromosomes. As you get older, apparently, they shrink. So if we're going to reverse aging, guess what we're going to need to do? We're going to need to elongate our telomeres. Well, good luck trying to do that, by the way. No, actually, they say you can do this, and they, they've, they've made some connections and studies to discover how can you elongate your telomeres, and even people who are 60 years of age, so I've got hope. But apparently, right, you can do this by a diet and low stress and exercise and, um, and so on. And so they, they, they have discovered that people who do these things, they apparently have looked at their telomeres and said, wow, your telomeres are 75% longer. So whatever. I, I don't know where this study is going to go, but the truth is we all face death, and there's something within man that fears death because they believe there is a sense of finality to it, a finality to it. Many people in our day are obsessed with how to cheat death, how to prolong life because of their fear of death. Death comes to all of us. We are all, in a sense, searching for a holy grail. But I want to tell you that Scripture tells of it, and I'm going to use this metaphorically, a holy grail. There is a plan that God has, and it's not an object. It is a person. And back in the 80s, Guys in the back, back in the 80s, there was a, a group called Petra that wrote a song about this that I want us, I want us to, to listen to for just a moment, okay? This is the 1980s. 
They were, at the time, they were my favorite group, my wife's as well. We bonded over that group, right? Okay. <laughs> anyway, yes. The, I, I was also, by the way, I don't know if you, as I was researching and trying to bring up this song, I found a different version of it. And it's the same group, but 25 years later. <laughs> and Greg Vols, the lead singer here, he's got an amazing voice. It's, he still sounded the same. I'm thinking, man, how did he do that? Wow. But here is a truth. Jesus came, and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus came, and he came as our grave robber, like the song says. And he came to cheat death, if you will, and to conquer it. But the truth is that several thousand years ago, Scripture says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, in the day you eat of it, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And this right here is the reason why we even have to face this issue of death. We have to face tragedy because God created a perfect world, a world in which when he was all done, he said it is very good. But man came along and he decided he was going to have, he, he wanted to do things his own way. Last week, I think it was, I mentioned, you know, when God created us, he created us to love him. But in order to love him, it could not be coerced, but it had to be volitional. We had to make a choice. But with the choice to love also came the choice to do what, church? To do our own thing, rebel, sin. And this is what happens here. In the day, we're not talking about a 24-hour day here because this phrase is preceded by a preposition it's the word yom, but it's preceded by the preposition be, be yom, which means in the day. Now, some of you have the NIV, and it translates it when. Fair enough. When you eat of it. But it doesn't mean in the 24-hour period that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Because guess what? When Adam and Eve ate of it, they didn't die that day. Spiritually, perhaps so. But physically, it was hundreds of years later, actually, in that indefinite period. That's what the word day can mean when it's preceded by a preposition. And may I, suggest, may I say to you, it is translated that way only in those situations. Just in the side note, Genesis 1 then clearly refers to 24-hour days, not long periods of time. Enough on that, but in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
the result of this sin was a ravaging of God's perfect, very good creation in which now there is disease, there is destruction, there is death, and it is everywhere. And it is not just in us. It, as you turn to Romans 8, it is everywhere, even in the universe, throughout God's creation, sin has broken the perfection of God's creation. We face it every day. God has now permitted tragedy and sorrow into each of our lives, and we face it on a regular basis. And the question then is, how do we deal with it? Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It is unavoidable. Death comes to us all. We all have to face it. We all struggle with it. It, it is not easy for any of us. And yet, Scripture gives us hope. It says here in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, verse 14 and 15, are you there? It says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, flesh and blood, right? He too, referring to Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, listen to this church, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to do scientific research so that I can live forever. I have already discovered the Holy Grail, if you will. I've already found Jesus Christ who overcame my fear of death by overcoming death itself. He destroyed Satan. You see, Satan leads us astray. He leads us into this thing called sin. But not only does he lead us into sin, which then the result is death, but he also, Satan also, blinds the eyes of unbelievers. Before I gave my heart to Christ, before you gave your heart to Christ, the devil blinded your eyes, Scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Timothy 2, talks about how we were caught in his snare. We were blinded so that we could not see the light of the glorious gospel. We couldn't see it. We couldn't understand it. And God had to open our eyes. Satan is a slave master. His goal is to completely ruin the creation of God. He delights in this thing called death and disease and destruction. It was his doing. And Jesus, Scripture says, came to destroy that power that the devil has so that in the end, not death, but life, would truly reign. Life would truly reign. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says that we do not need to mourn like those who have no hope. We don't need to mourn like those who have no hope. We have a hope. That hope is in Jesus Christ. And many in our day are frantic to prolong, honestly prolong the inevitable. But those who believe, they believe that there's more than that. Those who do not, many of them. You know, you read through all the scientific journals today, and science is knowledge, and knowledge is power. And in our day, people are looking for that power. They're looking for the knowledge. And science is just coming forth with, with, with such ferocity. And what science tells us, that is, scientists tell us, 
is that there is only the immaterial. There is no spirit. There is nothing immaterial. There's no such thing called a soul. You, what you see and touch and feel, that's all there is. And when this life is over, bye-bye, so long. You're, you're done. You're gone. But the hope that we have as Christians is that death is not a goodbye. It's a see you later, isn't it? It's a see you later. You know, when Kate went away for five months to Mexico, when Juliana went away for three months to Colorado Springs, we shed some tears. But it wasn't a goodbye. It was a see you later, right? And that's what death is for us. It's a see you later. There is a hope that we have in Christ And because of that hope, we can truly go through this life with this sense of triumph. I want you to imagine if somehow the the devil were able to remove that hope that you have for eternal life. Maybe you really remember it well because it wasn't too long ago when you didn't have that hope. What was that like? No hope. I I want you to imagine it right now. No hope. This life, that's all there is. How do you live your life? What is your purpose now in life? And it's so short. What are you driven by? There's fear, isn't there? There's this this sense of inevitability that you cannot stop. And when you talk with unbelievers, especially those who are older, it's tragic. When you go to funerals in which the person dies and they most definitely were not a Christian, And there was no hope. Have you ever been to those types of funerals? They're tragic. No hope. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want us to look at this idea. What did or what will Jesus be doing in overcoming death? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter actually is about the resurrection. Paul launches into this as a defense because some people have believed that the resurrection has already taken place and he's trying to tell them it obviously has not or that it is that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees in Jesus say did not believe there was a resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit. They believed just as many scientists, secular scientists do today, that the flesh and blood, that's all there is. The physical, that's all there is. There is no There is no spiritual, there is no supernatural, there is no God, and consequently, there's no hope beyond this life. And so what we read here in in 1 Corinthians 14 is, excuse me, 15, is Paul's defense of this. But here's what he says, starting with verse 22. He's leading us into this understanding of the resurrection and Jesus' conquest of death. And here's where he begins, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, So in Christ, that is those in Christ, all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we get a picture here of what's going to be happening at the end of the age, whatever that may be. Many believe that it's just around the corner. I, I hope it is, honestly. I hope that we're in the last generation that sees global revival and Jesus comes back. 
But at some point, when Jesus comes back and the dead are raised, it says at that time, after that point of resurrection, Jesus will have conquered all of his enemies, including death, and he will turn the kingdom over to the Father. Not that Jesus will stop ruling and reigning, because his rule will be forever and ever. But he now will turn the kingdom over to the Father because when Jesus sat down at the right hand, the Father gave him the kingdom, all authority, all rule, and he reigned supremely. He was made head, Ephesians chapter 1, he was made head over everything for the church. Not just head over the church, head over everything for the church, for you. Tons of implication there that we can't get into. Amazing. But now Jesus, at the end of the age, turns the kingdom over to the Father, and they now experience a co-regency, a ruling together with the Father as the main leader, if you will. He is the head. The head of Christ is God, Scripture says. And so that is the picture that we have here. And at that moment... All of Jesus' enemies will be conquered. He will have come back. He will have raised the dead. And he will reign triumphantly and receive, and, and, and all the kingdoms of the world will now be his. And he will hand his kingdom over to the Father. Death is the last enemy. Turn now, just a few verses later. I want to read a few of them, starting with verse 54. But you, you've probably heard this. Um, that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the dead in Christ will be raised. And it says here in verse 54, it says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal, that's this stuff, with immortality, that means you will be receiving your glorified body. And the truth is, church, that those who have chosen to follow Jesus and believe in him, they will be raised to eternal life in these glorified bodies that Philippians 3 says will be just like Jesus's glorified body. But those who chose not to believe in him, those who chose to never truly trust and commit and surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as the Master, as the one who will be there all in all as their consuming passion and desire. Those who choose not to follow him, Scripture says they will be raised as well, but to destruction, eternal destruction. Now, if you do a study on this in the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Interesting. And as we see this, verse 54, he says, when that happens, when, the, when we are raised to life and we receive immortality, when we receive our glorified bodies, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. No more death. As soon as the resurrection happens, no more death gone, period. We are now ushered from the judgment into the new heavens and the new earth where we will reign with him, Revelation 22, 5, reign with Jesus forever and ever. 
But I, I tell you what, I am looking forward to that. And with it's not just death, but Revelation 22 says the curse will be no more. Gone. We just sing joy to the world. Isn't there a phrase in joy to the world where it says that the curse will be no more? Something along the I'm trying to remember the exact wording. Um, it's one, actually one of my favorite carols. And there is this triumph that Christ has in which all everything that sin destroyed and, and wreaked havoc in, in God's creation will be made right again. In, in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, it says he will restore all things. And that word, the Greek word for restore is used to mean complete restoration. And when you look in, in the Greek writings of that day, of, of the time of Jesus, you actually discover they used that word in, in astronomy to talk about planets that would revolve. And as they, as they would go, they believed, many of them believed that the earth, of course, was the center of the universe. As it rotated around the earth and came back to its original position, they used that Greek word, restored. So it back to its original. And God is going to take this broken, messed up world that we are responsible for because of our sin, and he's going to restore it. Church, there is a whole lot more to this life than just the physical. And as we, at the end of the age, rule and reign with him, everything will be restored. Everything will be restored. And it says here, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death, sin, came into this world with its, the, the, the sting of death ends up being the result. And we need to realize that Christ came to overcome that. Christ came to triumph over that. And we look forward to this. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. The problem that we face, even though we may have this hope of eternal life, that even though our sin brings death, and before I became a Christian, I was actually considered dead in my transgressions and sins, Scripture says. But because of Christ, I have been made alive, and one day I will live forever. So right now, I am experiencing in part God's covenantal blessing and his inheritance that he has given to each of us. We experience it in part now, but then we will experience it in full. What then do we do in biding our time now? That day will come in which Jesus will conquer that enemy of death. And there is a sense in which my spiritual death, he has already overcome. And so I have been actually, Scripture says, raised up with Christ. Is that not cool or what? I have been raised up with Christ. I, seat, I am seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And his life because God is the source of all life. His life is in me. His life is in you right now. The life of God is in you. The Spirit of God is in you. So how now do we live in this life with that in view? Hebrews 11, I want us to, to look at 
and focus on a little bit here. In verse 8, it says, by faith, Hebrews 11, 8, it says, by faith, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. This is what Abraham did. He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And so we, we have this picture, if you will, of Abraham, and he's traveling about. He does not choose to live in a built home that has strong foundations of cement and walls of brick or clay or whatever, however they would build them. But he chose to live in a tent because he realized, as it says later, that he was a stranger. He was an alien. I mean, this land was actually given to him, but there were people living on it. And God said, you know what? Even though I've given it to you now, I'm not going to give you the deed for a future time. It is actually more than four or 500 years later. And the Israelites came out of Egypt into the promised land, conquered it. It was then theirs. They were given the deed at that time. But Abraham, in his day, it says here, he was looking forward to that future heavenly dwelling, but here and now, he realized it was temporary. He was just passing through. And so to image that, the author of Hebrews tells us he lived in tents. Do, do you see the imagery then? He, it's, this is transitory. We're just moving along. We, he lived in tents because this was not his home. You know, I remember growing up, we would go camping a lot. We would go camping in the White Mountains. That was probably your favorite place, camping in the White Mountains. Uh, but wherever we would camp, my dad had this thing because we set up tent, okay? He would pull up into the uh, parking place at our campsite. He would look at his watch and he would say, okay, guys, last time we did set up camp, it took us eight minutes and 39 seconds. We are going to break that today. And it was always this game that we would play, how fast we could pull the tent out. He says, Michael, do you know what you Check. Okay, Chris, Rob, Dan, do you know what you, we got it, Dad. Okay, on the word go, we're going to jump out of this car and we're going to set up this tent and we're going to do it faster than eight minutes and 39 seconds, right? And it was like, hoo-yah! And so we would, oh, he would say go and we would open those doors and we would, some of us would go to the back and we start unloading. My dad would pull the tent out. We would put the tent down and, and we would start digging the trench. Others, we'd be gathering the pine straw, the pine underneath the pine trees, because we would put that under the tent for a little bit of padding, and then we would stake it in, and we'd have that trench built for rainwater, uh, rain, rain runoff, and we'd put up the poles, and man, boom, seven minutes and 58 seconds, yeah, and we'd high-five each other. And But we had a great time setting up the tents. I'm not sure Abraham did that with his, with his caravan or not, but the truth is, he did it, he set up his tents, because this was, not the, this was not the land where he was going to be living forever. This was not his yet. He was looking forward to a time yet in the future. He was looking forward to that time of being with his God forever and ever. Did you realize in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, it says that heaven was what we were created for? 
heaven is what we were created for. That is our ultimate purpose. But here's what I want us to see. In this life right now, we have a lot of choices to make. It is so easy to not live in tents, metaphorically, but to build our home. You see, that happened in Lot's day. Abraham, for the rest of his life, lived in tents, but a time came in which Lot separated from him. If you were to follow in Genesis, Lot chose the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was probably that area north of the Dead Sea and very plush. He took residence there for his business. He was a, uh, a sheep herder. And it says that he lived near Sodom. By the time it came for God to destroy Sodom, where do we find Lot? He is not living near Sodom anymore. He is actually living in Sodom in a house. And somehow he has managed to find himself among the leaders because the angels find him sitting at the city gates. That means he was a leader in that city, a leader in the sinful city. And yet my question is, Lot, how have you impacted those people? I would suggest little to none because when he tells the people to move away from his house, that as they were trying to attack the, his two visitors that were angels, by the way, they say, who made you judge over us? Lot was a leader. And this was his first time of calling them to righteousness? Really? And I would suggest to you that the story of Lot is really a story of a man who forgot how to live in tents. It was a story of a man who forgot that this life is transitory, that this life is not all there is. See, Abraham got it. We were created for then, but this life, God is trying to do something in us as we look forward to that life then in the future. Our problem, though, is that we lose sight of that goal like Lot did, and we start living for the here and now. We start getting caught up, and it becomes all about how much money you can make and how high you can rise in the corporate level. And, you know, can, can you have a wife and not get divorced? That, that's a trophy today, uh, to be able to have children and see them actually raised up, even within the church, raised up and follow Jesus. That's, that's like a miracle in our day, because we have this tendency to settle and build a home. And I'm saying that metaphorically. There's nothing wrong about building homes. We, I live in a home, just so you know. I do not physically live in a tent. Okay? But the idea is that this life is not my home. Because Jesus came as the grave robber to conquer sin and death. And I look forward to that time. But God has called me to live here and now in a way that impacts my future, that impacts my future. Unfortunately, Lot lost that vision. And unfortunately, he lived for the here and now. And he got caught up in his business. I'm sure it grew. Maybe he chose to move inside the city because that's where the rich live. Maybe he just kind of delegated out everything in his business and the sheep herders, they lived in tents, but he got to live in the city. But that's where he lived. That's what life became for him. 
He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his business. He lost everything. Because for Lot, it was all about here. And he lost sight of then. What a tragedy that we would live that way. That we would learn, that we would settle for this life when there is so much more. You see, in this life, God is painting with your life as his canvas an amazing, beautiful picture with the colors of his vibrant grace. And in your life, in spite of all of the tragedy and the curse that we live in this world, in spite of all of the hardships and the difficulties, God is able to take those hardships, take those difficulties, and mix them with the vibrant colors of his grace and paint something absolutely beautiful in your life. If you realize, you know what, this life is not all that I'm living for. I am living for then, but right now he is creating this masterpiece on this canvas of my life by his grace because it is that picture that I will take with me. Church, listen to this. That picture that he is painting in your life, that is your redemption story. That is what you will carry with you throughout all eternity. It is not about this life and getting caught up in it and how much money you make and how many cars. And is it a Lexus or a Cadillac or do you still have to buy a, do you still have to drive that old Ford found on road dead, right? Or fix or repair daily. I could keep going, but some of you own Fords, so I won't do that. You own a Toyota. What are you talking about? Oh, one of them is a Ford. Sorry. Okay. I don't own Fords anymore. <laughs> we did, but I won't get into that story. The truth, though, is that we, we can get caught up in this stuff of life and lose our focus. We can settle rather than being pioneers who are transitory and passing through this world and seeking to make the most of what God brings our way. And we can only do this by his grace. It is only by God's grace that God reached down into the lives of Mary and Joseph. And in Luke chapter 2, she's getting ready to deliver. We don't know how close, honestly, she was to delivery. It actually seems that they arrived quite a bit before the baby was due. Whatever it would be, the baby's due. What an inconvenient time. Ladies, I'm sure you could testify a whole lot more than I could what it would be like to ride a donkey for 100 miles when you're about ready to deliver, right? To be able to not find a place and have to live probably with the animals because Jesus was born in a manger. The fact that they had to travel so far. The fact that within a year or probably even just a few months, they had to pick up. And you want to talk about traveling on a donkey for 100 miles before you're pregnant? How about after you deliver, traveling hundreds of miles on that same donkey to Egypt? Wow, God, are, are you really in this? You, you seem to somehow 
I'm, I'm supposed to be giving birth to the Son of God, and this has been so hard. And by the time they get back to Nazareth, now having to live for many years with this stigma of, oh, weren't you the woman who got pregnant outside of wedlock? Wasn't that you, Mary? And have to live with that. God was able to take the tragedies that Mary and Joseph went through and somehow turn them around to this absolutely perfect story in which God's grace paints this amazing canvas on the lives of Mary and Joseph and, of course, Jesus himself. Because they chose, so to speak, to live in tents. They chose to keep their focus where it needed to be. They realized this life is not what I am seeking. I am seeking to have the grace of God right on my life for all to see, regardless of what tragedy comes my way. Right now, today, with his grace, God is writing on my sister's life. She just lost her husband. She tells me, you know, Mike, I would really like you to stay with me. I really enjoy people being in my home right now. The hardest time, honestly, is when the people aren't around. And I'm not reading a book. And my thoughts are to myself. And I miss Chuck. They were best friends. And she misses him. So I'm not suggesting to you this morning that here's a, an amazing formula that somehow God is going to erase tragedy in your life. I can't promise that because we still live in a broken world. But what I do, what I am promising you is that in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of my sister's loss of her husband and that tragedy, God is painting this amazing picture in her life and on your life as well. And as you move through this life, not with your focus on how much you can gather because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, Jesus tells us, but it consists in this pursuit, this, this, this unending pursuit of Jesus himself and following in love with him and pursuing him and not the things of this world, though he may bless you with them. The question, though, is how can you use them in this portrait? Because many of them, we build this amazing, thick, beautiful gold frame out of it. And somehow that is what makes our life impressive. Can I tell you that there is not one true artist that will say that the picture is all about the frame. And that frame would be all the stuff that you might acquire in this life. It is not about that. It is about what God is painting on the canvas of your life. And is he using these blessings, these he gives you, and work them in the fabric of what he is performing and doing in you? That's my heart. That's my goal. I want us to consider then how we are living and are we keeping our focus in the right place? I want us to just listen to the rest of that song, if you don't mind. Okay, so it was one of my favorites back in the day, right? <laughs> but 
consider what is God doing in me right now in view of the hope that Jesus the grave robber will one day resurrect me to live with him forever. Because it is that story in me today. Because it is that picture that we will be, that will be on display for all of eternity. God's grace in your life. Okay. heard in that last portion, but it says, from the dust comes a song. If you were to look in Revelation 14, the 144,000, whatever you make them to be, the truth is it says that only they knew the song that they sang. That song was the song of their redemption. That song is your personal testimony. That song that we will sing throughout all eternity is the grace of God displayed in our life here on this earth as we keep our focus on where it needs to be. Because I was created for then. That is my goal. That is my end purpose, the end game. So I'm going to close in prayer right now. And I want to ask you this. What is God up to in your life? How are you allowing God to write and to paint on the canvas of your life? What song will you be singing throughout all eternity? Because that song will be all about the grace of God in your life. Turning tragedy to treasures always to be remembered. Can you stand with me? God, I ask that you would so encourage our hearts this morning. Fathers, we're struggling 
maybe many of us losing hope, just wondering, God, when are you going to finally step in and rescue me from this difficulty, this tragedy? And I'm asking you, Father, right now, step in. Right now, begin to turn these tragedies around and show us your amazing grace. Display your glory, God, in people's lives. Father, as, as we yield our hearts to you, step into our lives. Don't allow us to get caught up in the stuff and the things of this world like Lot. But Father, as Abraham moving through, keeping our focus on you, God, I ask Lord, that, that, that we would be allowing your spirit to move in us, to turn these tragedies into treasures and to be able to, 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 to focus on your grace and what you're doing in our lives, that you are taking a hold of these difficulties that we're facing and you are changing them. You are bringing yourself glory. You are using them, God, for our ultimate good. So God, thing in us that is struggling and fighting so ferociously right now, that struggles with this life, I ask God, bring a peace and settle our hearts in you, God. And Father, right now, this is our prayer. I surrender to you. Come and take these things in my life and use them for your glory, and I will give you the praise. I will praise you forever and ever regardless of what my eyes see. Because what I don't see is your grace moving in profound ways in this life. So God, thank you for that. Keep our focus where it needs to be. And thank you, Father, that you came in sending your son Jesus to give us life, eternal life, abundant life here on this earth and throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.